Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. One of the most amazing things we found about immersive experiences is that they train our brains to be more present, to be more open to other kinds of emotional experiences. So by going on a tour, you're helping people open up these parts of the brain that we don't use as much, have amazing experiences that improve our life satisfaction, improve our relationships, improve our work because we've had these amazing experiences. So I think that tour operators and tour guides have a sacred duty to add value to people's lives. And it doesn't end when the tour ends, it actually can uh, you know, improve their entire lives. And so that's an amazing uh, duty that people have. And when that happens, you'll change lives for the better. It's an amazing thing. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tourpreneur Podcast. I'm Mitch Bach, and I could not be more excited to be speaking with my guest today, Paul Zak. Paul is a neuroscientist who wrote what I think is by far one of the best books I read last year. It's a book called Immersion, The Science of the Extraordinary and the Source of Happiness. Every single page, I whipped out my pencil and I underline, 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 because everything he was saying was what we talk about as experienced creators. However, he had the rare and distinct privilege of not just talking about it, but seeing the data inside our brains, inside devices that he's developed to sort of help us tell the story of what makes an extraordinary experience. So Paul, a huge welcome to Tourpreneur. Thank you so much, Mitch. What a nice uh, introduction. And I'm hoping to add some value on how to kind of optimize these experiences. Excellent. I can't wait to dive in, but I did want to give the listeners a chance just to get to know you a little bit more than my words of praise. Paul, could you give us just a little background of where you come from? Uh, I come from Mars, so I'm really trying to figure out what the humans are doing. And I do that by running experiments and measuring brain activity. So it turns out uh, if you have people do a task in the lab and ask them why they did what they did, they can't tell you. And so many years ago, I began measuring brain activity to figure out, um, first of all, why people are ever nice to each other. It's kind of a big question, right? You don't have to be nice, so why are we nice? What are the underlying neurologic um, factors of that? And then once we moved to that, we sort of discovered storytelling as a way to really influence niceness, if you will, pro-social behaviors. And then the natural question for that is, why are some stories awesome? You can see a movie five times and enjoy it, The Godfather or whatever. And I mean, going to the DMV is like getting your teeth pulled. So you come from Mars. Some people know it as California. Uh, I come from California. I'm a professor at Claremont Graduate University and 
started a software platform so everybody can measure what the brain loves. And so the book is uh, unfair. It's that I have 50,000 brain observations that I can draw insights from that no neuroscientist has because no one works at scale with a platform. So it's been a real privilege to see the many ways that people uh, use our platform to measure brain activity. And from that, I hopefully learned a lot that's going to be useful for this conversation. Probably our operators and our experienced creators in the audience wish they had the devices to peel back and figure out exactly what their travelers, their guests are feeling, thinking during the experience. All we really have are TripAdvisor reviews that come at the end. I just, you know, there, there are a lot of tells, right, that everyone knows. The the tired feet, the shifting the feet, the fidgeting, right? You're just like when you speak in public, you kind of know if you have the audience, if you hear a lot of this, uh, you know, you know, people moving around, they're like, okay, these people are not with me. So I think intuitively yep. everybody knows this. All we want to do is sharpen that intuition. So the book is called Immersion. And, you know, in the experiences industry, immersive experiences are all the buzz. It's all anybody seems to be talking about. The, the strange artistic sculptural experiences of Meow Wolf, the Spicegate Museum here in New York, where you assume an identity and then you walk through this kind of very lit, very interesting and immersive space and solve puzzles. Uh, those, Van Go those Van Gogh flower rooms where all around the world, I'm just in a giant pile of sunflowers. These are everywhere. In your opinion, what's 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 going on just at this moment? Why is why do we suddenly have this kind of blossoming of this idea of immersion? It's a good question, Mitch. I think part of it is the development of technology, that it is easier to get places, physical travel, but also things like VR, um, the really explosion and amazing um, online streaming programs, uh, and and lastly, I think the demand. Right, we're moving into the experience economy. We don't need more stuff. Most of us are privileged to have enough stuff and we have plenty of services. We just order and, uh, you know, valets come and bring us food and flowers and whatever we want. And uh, anyway, uh, so what we're missing now is experiences. I think this is where, uh, you know, travel is so important, but also these, you know, on-site immersive experiences as well. And yet not all of them are great. What I love about the way you use the word immersion is it isn't about just being enraptured in sunflowers from floor to ceiling. I think you're using it on a little bit more fundamental level that applies to a walking tour or the way we watch TV or the way we just sort of exist in the world. Could you take a moment and kind of tell me what you mean by immersion? I will. I want to precede that by telling you how we discovered it. So we really didn't. Mm. It's all funded by U.S. taxpayers, work for the Department of Defense and, and other agencies have asked us if we could identify signals in the brain that would accurately and consistently predict what people would do after an experience or a message, right? So if that experience is awful, well, you might still might do something, but it's not very influential. It doesn't have an impact on your brain. It doesn't create memories, right? So what are these messages and experiences that are so powerful that you'll do it over and over? I talked about in the book, about watching La La Land and at the end it's just powerful and crying in the theater and then watching it at home and crying again. Super weird. Now maybe I'm just a softie, but right. So that's a, a kind of an immersive experience. So for me, immersion is a name that I gave to an unusual neurologic state that captures the, the value that the brain gets 
from a powerful experience. And that value comes from two things. When it comes from attention to the experience, if I'm not attending to you, Mitch, I'm doing something over here, I'm not going to be immersed in our conversation. But the second and the bigger driver than attention is what I call emotional resonance, right? It really speaks to me emotionally. And those two factors, immersion, I'm sorry, attention and emotional resonance, can be captured by taking data from the brain, and particularly from the cranial nerves, the brain's output file, and it's measurable second by second. So it allows us to then ask, on average, is this experience good or bad? Neurologically, is it valuable to that human? But also, how might I change it in the future? Edit this piece of video, change this tour, so that it's more immersive. And immersion, again, correlates with enjoyment, correlates with a desire to repeat the experience, it correlates with uh, memories of that experience. And so you're kind of capturing all the things that we think make up an experience that is emotionally compelling. That's really fascinating. I love this concept of attention and emotion because I, I do a lot of work in storytelling with tour guides, with people exploring the way to create this kind of, this kind of moment between a group of people that is not just based on information that you're sharing about your city, but a certain kind of passion, a certain type of, I don't know, heart and love for a place that you're trying to communicate as a guide and an audience that's that's really receptive. So I, I, I understand in those words alone, and I know our audience does those moments that we've really felt kind of bonded to our our travelers and wondering what's going on in the brain behind that what's 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 at work in that moment and you nailed it so the very similar pathways when we um, express love could be romantic love could be friendship playing with your dog um, so again that nature is very conservative the same pathways activate when we have an immersive experience so we have this deep sense of emotional connection what's i think interesting about the neuroscience of immersion is that we have to be kind of pushed or shocked into this environment. As you, I'm sure you know, Mitch, the brain is a very lazy organ. It wants to idle. It takes 20% of your calories to run your brain is 3% of body weight. That means high overhead. So the body manages that high energy cost by just kind of staying at baseline. So I think from a tour perspective and from a storytelling perspective, which I like to come back to, We've got to kind of open hot. We've got to give you a reason to really be immersed in this because it is metabolically costly. We're asking people to spend that energy to really have an amazing experience. We need a guide, just like a movie or a video game has a guide. Right? Often in, in movies, there's a person who's a stand-in for the audience member, someone who's having this crazy, weird experience that the movie's about that the audience can um, identify with. And to put a cap on that, the most effective way to ensure that people sustain immersion is through a narrative arc. So I'm wondering if when you design and train tour guide, design tours and train tour guides, if you use kind of narrative tour guiding techniques. Yeah, that's that that's music to my ears because that to to me, without knowing the neuroscience behind it, what I've always found is that people remember things when it's when you give them a reason for it to stick in their brains. And one of the ways to make something stick in their brains is repetition is anchoring it in essentially a foundation that you lay, whether it's a theme or so that you're building something over time on this foundation that is emotional 
is is probably somewhat repetitive so that it's not just a onslaught of information, but it's also based in, for me as a storyteller, based in human stories, people stories. I'm thinking the the times in my experience of talking to a tour guides or being one myself or designing experiences, those are some of the things that that the guests seem to 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 remember people's stories, emotion, and the things that I make sure that I'm saying over and over again. Does that kind of line up with what 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 you're noticing on the back end, on the inside of the engine? <laughs> Very good. So it's human scale stories. So one or a small number of people who are in some un- unusual situation and then have a crisis. And with that crisis elicits authentic emotions, then we begin to share those emotions. So what's cool about immersion is it's contagious. If I'm immersed in this conversation with, with you, Mitch, it's very likely you're immersed with me as well. And so from a tour perspective, if that tour guide is really having a great experience, that is going to infect people in the group, which I think is important. Now, here's where it gets difficult and I think uh, hopefully useful. All that you know already, I'm sure. Intuitively, it's obvious. It's is that there's not one perfect story for every group of people. Right. So in the brain, if the story is more relevant to me, then actually I devote more processing power. So I call this relevance. So if I have a group of Japanese tourists and I'm talking about a 14th century Italian pope, I probably have an idea about that. But if you could weave in something from Japan or from Asia or I don't know, Marco Polo, if you can make those those connections that give you, as you said, an anchor a touchstone to make that story come alive, um, it'll be much more immersive. So it's really thinking about the audience and modifying that um, for that. So we talked uh, off air about TED Talks. Um, And so we found, for example, that um, immersion in TED Talks not only predicts how many people will watch it online, but a 10% increase in immersion for a TED Talk results in 176,000 more online views. Right, these size effects are large. So think about again telling a story about uh, the Vatican Museum. You want that story to be relevant to the tour you're leading, but at the same time also have that human scale, that um, conflict. I remember the story of the Sistine Chapel. Um, who painted that? Uh, uh, Michelangelo, right? And so you know, and he had this awful, I don't know, bishop or cardinal or something, and they had this picture of him in the side with some nasty face. And so, you know, that's that's what I remember from being on the tour of the Sistine Chapel, that there's some awful cardinal that was mean to Michelangelo. And then, you know, this there he is. And like, okay, that's super cool. Great human scale story. We understand that, that people can drive us crazy. And gosh, if I'm doing this grand multi-year thing where I can put a lot of faces in and <laughs> make this guy look like a devil, gosh, I think I would do that too. <laughs> How are you measuring these responses that's happening inside of... Uh of these travelers' brains or these experiencers' brains? Um, Initially, we did this in my uh, academic laboratory with blood draws, looking at changes in neurochemicals that are associated with these uh, kind of core attention and emotional resonance responses. Um, Later on, we got electrical activity from the cranial nerves, which you can pick up with a smartwatch or a fitness sensor. So now on the platform, the immersion platform, because some of these cranial nerves pass through the heart, they have these very subtle, like third and fourth order changes in the acceleration and deceleration of the heart. So basically, we can infer what the brain's doing from uh, a peripheral 
uh, wearable, which means, again, it goes anywhere, which is really nice. Um, and so, you know, having a platform means I don't have to think of every interesting, weird experience to try to understand and improve. We have people every day, you know, using our technology. And then a lot of that I hear about, and again, that's the secret of the book, is that we had just super weird applications of this technology, which I'm happy to share with you, that are just like, oh, that's a weird, crazy idea. Yeah, let's try to do that thing. So let's, let's, I, I did, that, that's incredible that you can infer these sort of brain states and activity from an Apple watch. I love that. And I would love to see what happens on a variety of walking tours or hikes or eight day experiences of a group of, I don't know, Canadians to India, but for the purposes of our conversation right now, without that data yet, uh, I'm, I'm wondering if we could break down sort of the, the some of the core elements of, of a travel experience, right? I'm not sitting and watching a movie. I'm walking about in a city or I'm biking about in a city. From the point of view of the experience giver, a tour begins. Are there things that you've learned are practical takeaways from your research that apply to, I guess, the beginning of an experience? Yeah, so I really have a kind of a five-step approach to creating an immersive experience that you know all this data suggested. Um, the first is I call setting the stage. Oh, that five uh, stage has an acronym, so it's easy to remember. Sirta, S-I-R-T-A, which I later found out is a little teeny village in the Alps in Italy. So if anyone listening has been to Sirta, shoot me an email. I got to find out about this place. Um, anyway, Sirta. So first is staging. I want to stage, set the stage. And that really means creating enough um, neurologic space, enough emotional space to have an immersive experience. So again, my example, the Vatican Museum, if you stood in line for two or three hours to get in, which you can do, not with a tour, but if you're just going cold, um, your feet hurt, you're thirsty, it's not, you know, right? you're not ready for that experience. So in that case, stop, go to the cafe, sit down, have a coffee, relax a little bit. Now you're inside. Before you rush, 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 right, give them a chance to actually get prepared for that experience. So set the stage is first, right? Make sure people are comfortable. Um, the I for that is use storytelling to create an immersive experience, human skill story with authentic emotions. The R is relevance. We talked about that. Target that story at your audience. The T stands for targeting. I use the word twice. Um, often in groups, you'll find that you have a super fan. And again, you can pick that up because they are bouncing on their feet. They are smiling, right? So you can extend and leverage your story by asking this super fan if you can identify him or her. Hey, tell me about what you think about this story. Now, this person may have some background. They may have no background. They're like, I love this story. I've always wondered about that weird-looking cardinal in the Sistine Chapel, right? So again, if you can leverage that story, as long as they don't run away with your entire tour, but we know how to stop it. And then lastly... The A for Sturta is a call for action. So many stories have an implicit or explicit call to action. That could be as simple as, hey, I'd love you to rate me on, on our app. Um, or, you know, tell me what you would do uh, if you were Michelangelo and you're being tortured by this cardinal. How would you have done that? Would you have drawn this painting or is there another way? So give people a way to participate in this story. By doing that, you make the story really come alive. And as you said, Mitch, then you kind of focus these memories on, holy crap, I was in Sistine Chapel, it's overwhelming, it's huge. I learned about some crazy stories and how this was done, you know, Michelangelo, three years on his back. And then 
we had this discussion of why there's so many ugly people on there. And it's crazy. And one of them looked like my uncle. And I told him that this guy looks just like my uncle. Okay. Now, not only is the, you know, the person telling the story going to have a great experience, but think of those 15 people on the tour. They're going to go, man, this was wild. Never saw the CC Chapel. It's amazing. And one of the dudes there <laughs> told this story that one of these uh, awful devilly looking guys was his uncle. Right. It, it really brings it home. It brings it to me, which I think is super interesting. So certain uh, staging, immersion, relevance, target and action. I love that. What I'm really uh, sort of blown away by sometimes with what your research uncovered is the way in which I guess our conscious brains don't tell the full story of how we're actually feeling on these tour experiences that and, and as much as we know when we're hitting the mark on a tour. I think we also we also know when uh, a guest is being polite, when they're maybe being being a little less than truthful, or they're making up reasons to their conscious self about why they're pretending to like our experience, but they really aren't. I was wondering if you could maybe just dive into this kind of world of of discordance between our our two our two levels of two levels of living. Right. And so one level is that unconscious level, which is perhaps 99% of reactivity, and there's other is the conscious level. So I do think most of us suffer from what I call the Freudian hangover. We think from Freud that if I just poke you enough, I can make that unconscious conscious. And it mm -hmm. turns out you can't do that in most cases. So we are very poor conscious um, articulators of our unconscious emotional responses. Um, and therefore, those surveys, particularly when they're retrospective, um, we should take with a giant grain of salt because it's just a hard question, right? How much do I enjoy that survey um, compared to my soda I had with lunch compared to my uh, my phone? Like, well, it's, yep. right. But in the brain, neural firing, the, act the activity of the brain is the common currency of value. And so everything is comparable. So one thing we have found from... Um, folks who have used our platform in the training space, so publicly Accenture, this big couple, uh, professional services organization, which spends a billion dollars a year training their employees, how about that, uh, have used the immersion platform for five years, and they find that people cannot stay immersed for more than 20 minutes. So hmm. even though on self-report, people may tell you, oh yeah, this is great, I'm an adult, I can stay here for three hours. Actually not. So we really want to uh, do what Accenture does, I think, for tours, which is break things down into smaller chunks. So could be not talking for more than 20 minutes and then have some participatory activity, right? That could be, again, I'm going to overuse the Sistine Chapel example, but you know, now look at that ceiling and see if you can find, you my tour people, see if you can find this thing. Right, and then I can then follow up as the leader and tell a story about this thing that we've found. As opposed to saying, "Look over here," right? That's passive, relatively, as opposed to now go explore and try to find a couple of things, and then we'll come back here in ten minutes and talk about it, and then um, have that kind of back and forth, much more of a dialogue than a monologue. And then Accenture has found these breaks need to be much longer, even though we'll say, "Oh yeah, I'm good." Again, if you're tired, hungry, angry at your partner, uh, thirsty, have to pee. That's just burning neural bandwidth that diminishes our ability to be immersed in the experience we're having. So um, invite people to sit down, invite people to have a chance. You know this already intuitively, but that's 20 minute chunks, I think are a good rule. So I call this the 20-20-20 rule. 
So what people say and what's happening inside their brains are really um, often unrelated. And the Super Bowl commercials we've measured, uh, you know, live in bars, the way people really, um, you know, experience them using this <laughs> technology and platform, have found that actually the most liked commercials on self-report have the smallest impact on sales, on YouTube views, where the most immersive commercials neurologically in the Super Bowl have many more YouTube views, many more YouTube comments, have a bigger effect on sales. So it's not always, you know, a pause, a negative correlation there, but uh, at least it's weakly, you know, likingly, liking, sorry, is weakly associated with people's real underlying experience. And so that is a really a cautionary tale to kind of read the emotions and look at people's faces, look at, again, the body language, see what you can learn from them, not just ask them, because people are nice. Or I ask, Mitch, are you tired? Do you need a break? Whenever you're like, oh, no, 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 let's keep going. I'm good because you're a nice person. So I think from the from the tour perspective, really kind of reading the body language, reading the, the drop in the shoulders, kind of the shuffling, you know, kind of get those unconscious cues that tell you that people are getting a little tired out. And I think that 20, 20, 20 rule is not bad. So don't talk for more than 20 minutes. 20 minutes is something active. And then come back and discuss what we learned actively and then put a 20-minute break in. So maybe it's a 20-20-20-20 rule. So much to unpack there, but so important. Listen, Paul, you're right. This is A lot of this is intuitive. You bring the data. However, just because something is intuitive, especially when you're listening to it in a podcast, doesn't mean you're practicing it. And the one thing that I see, I, I'm a little bit like you, except that my data is I take tours all the time. I observe tour guides. And one thing I notice is that the eagerness of the guide or of the operator who's ex who's designed the experience is to pack it in, that the more things we can do, the better. And what the so 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 the first thing that I hear you saying is that there's this concept of neuro fatigue, which is that we just simply can't take it. And even if you're the best storyteller in the world, three hours of nonstop fantastic storytelling is overload. We're not actually appreciating it. Correct. Second thing that I sort of glean from you talking about this this disconnect in terms of what we rationalize as liking and what we really like in your in your Super Bowl ad example, you've got an Alexa commercial which I should like because man, it's got all my celebrities in it and it has uh, billions uh, millions of dollars of production value in it. However. It's very routine. It's very, all right, now this celebrity comes in and pretends they're Alexa. And you, you, you start predicting it pretty quickly. You bring up this other, you bring up this other example of a Coca-Cola commercial. It's just a strange woman dancing. And yet you can't take your eyes away. You're immersed. What am I, what am I reacting to when I don't like it upon reflection? I don't like what I just saw. What am I? What am I? What am I actually liking in that case? Yeah, it's a great question. What is your brain responding to? And I think it's the unusualness. It's the asymmetry. There's a commercial that's filmed behind a yellow wall. It's a very tall woman dancing in a weird way. Um, the wall is not squared on the screen, so it's kind of on a bit of a slant. Um, she moves in a weird way. She's trying to sell Diet Coke twisted mango. Um, she's got silver shoes and weird rainbow socks and she's just just a kind of a giraffey woman and so it's it's so unusual you you know you can't help but kind of look at it 
um, where the Super Bowl commercial, as you said, is is repetition. So we got back to the lazy brain. Lazy brain goes, oh, Alexa can't answer the story, and now I'm going to have some uh, celebrity answer in a funny way, and that just repeats. So that uh, Amazon commercial would have been the most immersive commercial if they had stopped it at 30 seconds, but they ran it for 90 seconds because Amazon has more money than God, and they can, and that last 60 seconds was just wasted because we got it right away. So I think the answer there is hit them hard, hit them fast, let them have a breather. Let them just, um, it's like when you speak in public, think about having a, a joke or let it breathe a little bit. Don't feel like you need to rush into that. So I think this is, would be very unusual in tour setting where I want to get the value for my money. I want to get as much. No, actually slow it down a little bit. I think it's quality over quantity. I remember I was leading a um, tour through Greenwich Village and, um, I introduced something. I just read about it. Um, it was uh, an old beat writer who had an idea of, it was um, William S. Burroughs, who had this idea of the color walk where he would just walk around New York City and look at the colors and pick a color, red, blue, green. And then he would only allow himself to look at the green as he walked through. And he would discover things about the city. I was leading a beat tour tour back in this was 15 years ago and i said how cool would it be if for part of it for 15 minutes or 10 minutes i forget how long we would just walk and i would ask my travelers to go on that color walk and what ended up happening was at the end of the tour the best they said their favorite part was the part where i didn't open my mouth <laughs> it was where they were just being intentionally directed to engage in their environment uh in this new way that they hadn't expected before right it, to them, that was the strange mango girl. It's like contorting your 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 gaze in a new way, and they. But it was active. It it was it had a right. story. So you set up with a story, right? That's key. It was active. It didn't last too long. If I do this for two hours, I'm probably going to be exhausted. <laughs> and then, sure, Mitch, that you after that was over, that little period, you have a bit of a debrief. Hey, what did you guys see? What blue things did you see? Tell us. So now I'm really part of the tour guide experience. I am in some sense self-motivated to be part of this as opposed to really being passive. So we love the anomalous. We like these surprises or ways in which uh, our our expectations are violated. And as experienced creators, we have a, a great opportunity to do that. And yet the brain seeks stasis. So I'm sensing a little bit of a, of a conflict here that our brain wants normal. So actually the best thing to do for our brain would be just to walk at the same clip, tell the same thing. Right. Where's where's the balance? Yeah, I think the balance again is more of that 20-20-20. It's kind of have that acceleration and then kind of slow it back a little bit. So uh, even the walking pace, as a very interesting point, um, I was in one of the weirdest uh, little places, Madeira, this island off of Africa that the Portuguese own. And they had this famous uh, basket ride down this, um, it's a big volcanic, you know, mountain island. And, um, you know, if you try to run on that, you're going to kill yourself because the stones are too slippery. And so that they could do with baskets and the whole thing is just odd, but it's, it's a trek to get up there. And you really want to sit after you've climbed all these stairs to get to the top of this thing. So, um, I think that's where that, you know, maybe 20 minute climb up, maybe stop and have a coffee, 
And then you have this new experience. Now we got to the bottom. It was really exciting because you're going fast. These guys have to steer the basket. There's people, you've seen this, people hold the, the back of the basket and steer it. And it's just sharp turns and you think you're going to get murderized. And so um, anyway, I, you know, I think that's breaking up in little bits, but giving also giving people the option to opt out, right? If there's someone who's elderly or pregnant who doesn't want to do this, that's great. We You can stay here at the cafe. We can meet you at the bottom. So really... Um, giving people agency is a great way to invite them into an experience, but not kind of force it on them. So I do a little forcing, kind of like your family or your friends or your partner. You want to force them to do a little bit. Look, this is really not your kind of movie, but I really want to see it. Come with me. You probably enjoy it a little bit. That's okay. A, li- a little bit of coercion is all right. But then too much and they go, no, I hate superhero movies. I don't want to go go with some other friend of yours. Um, you know, I think uh, I don't know. Is that what you do on tours? You give people a, an option to kind of opt in or opt out? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you you coordinate certain free time moments where they explore in a way that makes sense for them, whether it's sitting on a bench and enjoying Washington Square Park or going dancing in the fountain. Uh, I think giving that balance, as you kind of say, between structured and unstructured, the, they give them back their autonomy because they're otherwise sort of passive receivers at the beck and call of you as the as as the owner of their experience and giving them a little bit more agency. You mentioned that a long time ago in our conversation, a certain level of interactivity to give them a sense of ownership around the experience as well. But the little push, I remember I, my favorite uh, uh, gelato uh, place in all of Italy is across the Trevi Fountain, which is a very touristy area in Rome. And I've taken so many people there, including my own kids, like, you think this is going to be some touristy, crazy place? Believe me, this is the best gelato you're ever going to get in your life. So I'm setting it up, right? So you can set expectations. Now, hopefully those are fulfilled. But every time I've been to that gelato shop, if anyone knows the Cherry Fountain in Rome, it's right on the the corner on the far side of it. And it's spectacular. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't think, I think it's very fine to set this up and go, look, this may seem like a weird thing, but... Trust me on this. I've been here a hundred times. This is going to be amazing for you. That's great. It, it, it kind of speaks to actually, you know, I, I took a big trip to Japan for my honeymoon and I thought it was going to be the pagodas and the cherry blossoms and everything else that I love. But the things I loved were actually not exactly great experiences. It was the green tea that tasted like snot, but I couldn't really like dislike it or like it it was just so alluring and i still remember it and i still kind of like it it's the time that i used google translate incorrectly and accidentally i think invited our taxi driver to come in and have dinner with us uh those things those pushes i I think you at a certain point used the word tension to talk about these these moments where the discomfort is productive or helps spur immersion yeah, exactly. So think of immersion as tension in your brain, and that's why you want that action at the end of this experience. Let them do something to dissipate that tension and resolve the story that you've put them in. And again, then they have agency for that. But also, as you've said, uh, Mitch, they're creating this sensory experience to the extent that this is great for travel. The more senses you engage, the better. So you talked about the taste of this weird tea. Um, the kind of embarrassment of using Google um, Translate the wrong way. I remember in Japan, I was surprised how much forest there is. These wonderful forests you can walk through. Um, you know, the palaces are great and they're amazing and they're everywhere. But like 
you know, I had some of the best times in the rain walking through and on the suburbs of Tokyo through forests with my daughter. And it's just crazy area that I, had, I just didn't think. I just think of this as a, you know, super urban, dense population. But actually, Japan's not that dense. I mean, the cities are, but the rest of it's not. That sense of unexpected translates into a really strong memory. Yeah, and that's that that shock that you need to kind of get you in. Like, holy crap, we were able to see this palace, and now we got this giant forest we can walk through. Hey, honey, my daughter, can we? How about there's some path here? Let's go explore this crazy forest. And then all of a sudden, that gives you a surprise, and you start creating your own story around that. So again, I think having that flexibility to kind of choose your own adventure to an extent. Obviously, people can't wander off and get lost in the forest. That wouldn't be good. Mm. Probably wouldn't wouldn't do your ratings so well. I mean, speaking of Japan, Japan, uh, I think it was the rail company actually introduced surprise tours where you book something that you don't know where you're going, and then you get sent a ticket the day before, and it's organized, but it, I think they, it's the random travel movement that's happening in Japan, and there's a lot of articles on it because it's like just get rid of the planning, get rid of my brain working at all. Just surprise me and delight me. Give me something new to chew on. I love that so much. Oh, that's a brilliant idea. Yes, great. And if you had a tour guide that would then, as you get on the Shikasan or whatever you're getting on, would now kind of fill you in. So we're going to go here. So in Japan, I remember taking the Shikasan from Tokyo out to Nagano, which is where these snow monkeys live. These white monkeys live in hot springs. It was awful because you take a local bus and it, no one speaks English out there. And then you go trek through snow and it's super cold. We don't have the right shoes. And then you get to this magical area with these wild monkeys running across your feet, living in hot springs, hundreds of them. Um, I mean, it was just a baby, little baby, cute little, you know, baby monkeys running around. It was just the most amazing experience because we suffered a little bit. And so I think that's where the, the investment both in travel, but also the investment in getting there can be really valuable. You're setting people up so that I'm a little bit tired. I'm a little bit more open to this experience. I'm not putting these barriers up. So that's the staging I talked about. Mm -hmm. Man, I mean, that makes me think about my Catholic roots and the concept of pilgrimage, which is profound and transformational, but only on the condition that you kind of have a lot of suffering. <laughs> You, you walk way more than your feet should be allowed to walk. But the result is entering into this almost like what? A space of receptivity to the world, to what's next in a way that you otherwise wouldn't if you were in your kind of normal mode. Like what, what what's going on there? Yeah, I think this again, normal desire for baseline. And once we push beyond that, then now we're kind of in a new world that our brain's not used to. So we're open to many more experiences. So um, any kind of extreme adventures, um, zip lighting, uh, you know, climbing mountains, Mount Kilimanjaro, whatever that is, um, push us to a level. So I think from a guy perspective, again, you want to be sensitive that you're not pushing people over the limit. Um, so there's this sort of inverted U-curve that happens everywhere in biology. And so I want to push people kind of to that sweet spot where you're a little bit uncomfortable maybe moderately uncomfortable, but not so much that you're kind of, you know, losing your mind. That's not good. And so again, that's going to vary a little by individual. So you have to think about who's on the tour, how far can I push them? But if I keep you at the low level of that inverted U curve, 
and you might as well just sit on your couch or use VR or something, you know, that's not yeah. an actual experience. Now, again, if you're, you can't get out or you have trouble walking and that's all you have, you know, wouldn't be terrible, but you know, VR Japan versus random really being in Japan and taking that tour, that would be, it's just a world away. So the takeaway here is um, you want to push people so that they're a little beyond their comfort zone. So you're opening them up to actually experiencing something new. Otherwise, they're going to revert back to what they're comfortable with. That's our normal state of being. And so that means a little, maybe a little bit tired, maybe a little bit hungry, a little bit thirsty. Hey, we're going to suffer a little bit to get to where we're going. But the, the payoff is this broad surprise that something crazy is going to happen. This discussion about surprise makes me also think about marketing, about where anticipation is happening a lot in the tour, which is before the experience starts. So much of this excitement is happening before you ever meet the guest, but they've already met you virtually through your website, through the copy that you've written, through the videos that you've shared. And it almost feels like you're advocating slightly for a less is more approach to how much you even tell them this trip is going to contain because once they set that expectation, it's like they're creating a baseline of what they expect and then the surprise becomes harder. That's a really interesting point. I think you're right, Mitch. I think that if I set the expectations, the world's best tour, we never get anything but five stars, and then your expectation is so high, I don't have much chance for surprise. I think you're right. We certainly want to use marketing to get people to sign up to do something. Again, even just leaving your home is coming out of your comfort zone. So we certainly want to do that. But um, maybe uh, leave some of the, the details out. So, um, you know, and I think, there, again, we're back to storytelling. So this is going to be an adventure. Parts of it you'll know from seeing movies or reading books or knowing history. And part of this, we don't know what's going to happen. And so maybe adding a little randomness, adding a little bit of uncertainty, which is a stressor and that inverted U curve works with stress as well. I want to push you under a kind of moderate level of stress so we don't know where we're going. Now, you don't want to lie to people. I think that's also a bad thing. But um, to say, look, when we get here, I'm not sure what's going to happen. It could be unusual. I remember in Madeira uh, going to a folkloric kind of dinner, classical dinner in a winery with dancing, and they didn't tell us much. They're like, there's this dinner. It's part of your event. You know, you're going to walk there, show up at six or whatever it was. And I had no idea what it was. And Mitch, as you know, because you know me, I'm a total introvert. I'm very self-conscious. I don't want to be the center of attention ever. Can't believe I'm even talking to you on the video. Uh, and, and I started, you know, it wasn't like I was drinking a lot, but I just, no one would dance with these four quarters. They were trying to pull people. I'm like, okay, I'll go. And so I'm dancing with these people in these crazy costumes in Madeira, you know, in the middle of the night. And I had such a good time because I didn't, ex you know, if they told me dancing, I would have said in my head, there is no way in the world, but I was with a group of people that, that I felt safe around staging, good staging. I didn't know what to expect, but it was really engaging. And I felt like, Oh, these poor, boring, these are, this is like a scientific conference. So really boring people, you know, like me. And so, you know, going up there and kind of getting people to go up and dance was something I get, I normally wouldn't do. And had I known, I would have, you know, for sure not done it. I am really intrigued now by this sort of crowd effect, this effect that here I am a traveler, I'm decentered from my normal habits, my normal state of being and I'm surrounded with these people encouraging me 
is there something kind of on a on a neurological level that is happening by the fact that I'm experiencing something in a group? Brilliant insight, Mitch. A plus. So for every experience we measured, and this is thousands, when you add a social layer, you increase immersion. Full stop. What's interesting is that we can do this around people we don't even know, and it may be more valuable. I'm not sure. We don't have enough data to say this. When I'm around some strangers, as opposed to just a group that I already know. So for sure, I'm sort of um, a different person when I'm around professional colleagues or complete strangers. I can do whatever I want to do. I'm not going to see these people again after this week tour, right? So if they think I'm weird or I'm, you know, whatever, um, it doesn't matter. Where if my neighbors think I'm weird, then I'm not going to see them every day. So I think you're exactly right. Uh, the social layer is important. And having some, again, underlying um, uncertainty about who I'm with is important. So I, I, you can tell me, if I have a tour where everyone knows each other, they're all friends or family members. Does it feel different when you leave that versus you get a bunch of, some people know each other, but then a bunch of strangers? I think when you, when you've done, when you know you've done your job, when there's just something at the end of even three hours of a food tour, when, when you look, you just look at the people around you differently and it's because you've been through something you've and you've shared something you know this makes me think uh my husband and i went to miami a couple of months ago and um a lot of immersive experiences down there there's one called super blue and there was a an exhibit or an installation i guess you could call it imagine a large dark room with three thousand light bulbs suspended in kind of almost like a topology or topography of a mountain uh uh, but inverted, and they're all pulsing. Um, I think it was called pulse topology or topography. I think, and um, it's a Mexican uh, Mexican artist, I, if I remember. But what was so interesting was that some of the light bulbs dangled down alone, low enough that you could touch them and you could reach your hand up. And it was explained to me that if you put your hand under this sensor with a light. It reads your pulse and then the lights start pulsing and there's a sound to it as well. They start pulsing and sounding according to your heartbeat. The whole room lights up with your heartbeat. If another person is at another sensor and does it, then some of the lights start to create this kind of coordinated, you know, pulsing and experience where suddenly four or five different heartbeats are creating this unique moment that will never be repeated the way it is. And I don't know. I mean, it was, I was there for three, four minutes and I looked at the other people that were doing it. And I, I felt an intimacy, a connection that I, I, that was, that was incredible after just a few minutes, because we felt like our hearts were sort of on display and we felt connected because of that. That's a really powerful level of immersion you can get to, if I'm using the word right. Yes. And that happens all the time. So when you're getting an experience together, our physiology begins to coordinate. And that's mm -hmm. when you have people who are separate begin to behave almost like a super organism. And I'm sure you've had this experience leading tours where these people just gel. They are just doing their thing and they become friends. They start sharing phone numbers. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, this is an amazing experience. So I think the ingredients for that are the unexpected, this staging or safe space. The, the tour guide has to make sure people feel comfortable. If it's too much, then again, I get overwhelmed and I'm going to withdraw. 
And then the third is that often when I'm doing something active, so I'm doing it really. So I used to teach a class on high-performance teams, and we had a field trip to go to the mountains and zip line together. And there's a pretty rigorous zip line. Some of them fall, like you're repelling and zip lining at the same time. And it's amazing what a bonding experience that is, because some people, I don't care, I don't have a fear of heights, it's fun for me. But other people would really support each other. They were really kind of freaking out. They wanted to do it. And people would hug them and, and you know give them a lot of love and encourage them to do this. And then at the end of this long course, like you just made a team, right? You have, you have the people who have really bonded. So again, if it was just um, us walking on the beach, chit-chatting, pleasant, but not a bonding experience. We need a little of that stress and uncertainty. I think, I think in your book, you talk about the power of sort of coordinated movements that that creates a kind of bonding or this sort of super super organism um, as as well it, it 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 reminds me of sort of church settings or concert settings where we're all doing something in unison. Is there a certain power to that that sort of side of things too? And when you're in a tour and you're physically walking together, right? That's exactly you're setting them up. And so I'd say from a guide perspective. Use that to your advantage. You're building this superorganism. Now, have that organism do something that is active, that is not, you know, um, just listening to the story you're telling them as well as that could be, but they're taking part of that. So if you can treat them almost as a group, right? As a group, we want you to go look for these things and then come back and we're going to talk about them, right? Much more than here are the things to look at. Wow, I love that metaphor of almost thinking of your group as a super organism that you're trying to choreograph or cohere and move in 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 coordinated ways and that 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 immediately makes it feel like what you're doing is something way more than just hoping everybody gives you five stars at the end and it's important and it's also uh makes the experience not only more immersive but more pleasant for the individuals because now I'm part of a team and we're social creatures. We will bond together. Just give us a reason. We need a little bit of stress, a little bit of uncertainty, and we'll just form a group right away. Are there other things to consider at different scales? Let's say a walking tour, it's three hours long. So 2020, extending that is a lot of 20s. Is there a sort of macro level, a zoomed out level that I might be thinking about in terms of how to design for immersion? on three hours and then how does that also change over three days yeah it's a great uh, great question and so what we want to do in longer experiences and longer would be sort of two hours and beyond is really think about kind of helping people uh, move around that baseline but then having small moments of peak experiences so something unexpected something amazing so watching a sunrise or a mountaintop uh, you know something that's really going to uh, drive that experience because I can't keep you at the peak forever. It's just too exhausting. So it's really curating these kind of little waves. We're having great time and then having these peaks and those peaks neurologically might last something like five minutes, seven minutes max. And so if you're thinking about designing an amazing experience that um, I, I'm running out of good examples to give, but you know something that's just really awe-inspiring, again, that's going to be build up something hard to get there. I've got to climb these stairs. I've got to do something and then have that experience. But it's going to be fairly short again, because this is a long experience and people are just going to get exhausted. And then after that peak, give them a little refractory or refreshing period. 
great time to sit on the bench, have a cup of tea, right? And and again, maybe discuss that experience. How that feel to you? What you know? What what about the your neighbor next to you? How does she feel about this experience? So not only just having the experience, but then reinforcing that to really build those memories and absorb the information from other people, which is actually really fascinating. So as a confirmed Martian, I find the humans absolutely fascinating. And, um, you know, they have lots of interesting things to say. It's funny that when you get them to share, it turns out they, they also have perspectives and experiences that can enrich uh, a, shared, a shared moment. Um, one of the most amazing things we found about immersive experiences is that they train our brains to be more present, to be more open to other kinds of emotional experiences. So by going on a tour, you're helping people open up these parts of the brain that we don't use as much, have amazing experiences that improve our life satisfaction, improve our relationships, improve our work because we've had these amazing experiences. So I think that tour operators and tour guides have a sacred duty to add value to people's lives and it doesn't end when the tour ends it actually can uh, you know improve their entire lives and so that's an amazing uh, duty that people have and when that happens you'll change lives for the better it's an amazing thing there's no follow-up to such a beautiful statement that really summarizes i think uh, just a, a a great and refreshing way for our community to reflect on and think about what they're doing. And you hit on it at the end uh, more beautifully than I've ever heard because it's a sacred duty that our community is willing to accept because they understand the the, the riches that come from it. And the riches are changing lives and those moments of bonding, those moments of transformation that happen through, like you said, just minutes of immersion, minutes of 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 of, of wow moments. And so, Paul, thank you for lending a new vocabulary and actual hard data to this. We'll be linking to uh, not only the book, but all sorts of resources to help people go further. I, I, I wonder, has there been any, any books, any people in your life that you find yourself referring back to as really important and transformative in the way you view the world and view all of this? Well, uh, it's a wonderful question, Mitch. Thank you. Uh, and what a privilege to be on with you. Um, you mentioned the Piney Gilmore book, The Experience Economy. Absolutely worth reading. Uh, my favorite business book ever. Um, I do think that ultimately we're talking about happiness, adding value to life, and uh, Arthur C. Brooks of Harvard has written a number of great books on happiness, uh, who's a, just an amazing um, scholar, but a beautiful writer as well, has a column in the Atlantic uh, magazine. And um, so anyway, uh, Piney Gilmore, Experience Economy, uh, Arthur C. Brooks has written a couple of books on happiness that are worth reading um, and really lean into this sacred duty that we've been given to improve people's lives. Paul, it has made me extremely happy to spend this hour with you. I feel incredibly enriched and thankful for your presence. So thanks for joining us on Entrepreneur. Uh -huh.